So we are up to Zechariah 12, and uh, it reminds me of a phrase in the Belgic Confession that the Word of God proves itself to be true. Even the blind can see that everything that's spoken therein, all the prophecies, are fulfilled. And you just see that so clearly written in Zechariah. 500 years before Christ was born, you see how the Lord is... Um, prophesying the future. But Zechariah chapter 12. You'll notice the phrase, on that day, on that day. And there are so many uh, interpretations of that. Some say, well, that day refers to, oh, Armageddon, the day before Christ returns. But it's, that's highly questionable. If you look at the context, it's very, very much uh, referring to a different day, which we hope to see what that day refers to. The coming deliverance of Judah, which means the church, right? The church. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness, to all the surrounding peoples, when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. It shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion, its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah, and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness." And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a firepan in the woodpile, like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. The house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, whom they pierced, Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. This is God's word. You know, afterwards we plan to sing a really nice song that comes right from this passage. And you'll see that in, uh, is it number 386? It just uh, brings it out so beautifully. But anyway, we'll... Uh, Sing that later. So, you know, beloved, we need good news, don't we? 
And if we're going to go look for the good news, we're not going to find it on TikTok. We're not going to find it on social media. Not really. There's just a lot of bad news out there. Isn't there? Bad news. One sad thing after another. Right? Ongoing war in Ukraine. We hear about the blood curdling down the streets in Iran currently. And thousands and thousands being arrested. We hear of growing persecution against the church, probably in every country by now, every country of the world. We hear of broken, broken relationships, right? Abuse, victims of abuse, perpetrators of abuse, relationships broken everywhere. And you know, every day again, in our sinful, broken world, that's what we're hearing. And God reminds us also in this chapter and reminds the people who were so discouraged in those days as they looked at things around them with their physical eyes, you look up. There's good news. And God brings out the good news so beautifully. He kind of puts forward before them the map of the future and say, there's good days coming. The good, there's good news now. So what is that day? Right? You, you hear that phrase again and again. That day, that day, on that day. What's he referring to? Well, if you look at the context, it's very clearly, first of all, primarily referring to the day of Christ's first coming. His death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. That's where the primary reference is to on that day. Not exclusively, not totally, but First of all, primarily refers to that time. And you see here, God lays before his people, he says, don't look around you only. But you look up and you see two things. You see the promise of redemption. There's the promise of redemption. Of course, we also have that before us because there's still a fuller redemption to come. But there's also the gracious effects of this redemption. We see that in verses 10 through 14. So 1 through 9, the promise of redemption. And in verses 10 through 14, you see the powerful, the gracious effects of that good news, of that redemption in our lives, in our hearts. Yeah, and we live in that day today. The words spoken 515 years before the birth of Christ are fulfilled in Christ today. And yet, not fully, because we're still here in the here and now where there's so much battle, so much sadness, but better days are yet to come. And you notice, where does Zechariah begin in his message? He goes right back to Genesis 1. He goes back to the creation when God, from the word of his mouth, made this beautiful world in six days. He's the creator of the world. He's your creator. And therefore the world and all its dominion is in his hands. That's, the, that's a real comfort, isn't it? To know that all things are in his hands. Not in Satan's hands. Right? Satan is a pesky, but it's in God's hands. Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, who forms the spirit of man within him. You know what God is showing us here 
is that there's reason to believe in his promises that he has given us. Don't doubt them. Look who he is. By his power, by his power, he will make all things new. Verse 1, you could say, creation, anticipates verse 10, the new creation. Everything that is sad, everything that is broken, everything that is old, he's going to make new. Right? He's going to pour out the Spirit upon us, the Spirit of grace and supplication. You see his Spirit going to renew the face of the earth. And with that promise, he carries forward his plan of redemption. You know, think back to the Garden of Eden, to our first parents. God made a promise that he was going to send Jesus to do what? To be the king who will crush the head of Satan and save his people from the dominion of sin. The king is going to come from David's house. That's why there's so much mention of David's house here. It's not referring to literal Jews, but it's referring to the church, the gathered people of God, back then already in the Old Testament. And it's from that lineage, though, that the king will come forth from the house of David. He will bring salvation, and he will ultimately renew all creation. And now in verses 2 through 9, you hear about Jerusalem. Don't think of Jerusalem, the city that's in Israel, when you read this term Jerusalem. A lot of people, unfortunately, do. But Jerusalem here is simply a picture of the church, the New Testament church, the church of today. It's speaking of the future. It's speaking of spiritual Jerusalem. It's speaking of the spiritual people of God. And what do you see in verses 2 through 9? You see the enemies of God attacking endlessly, unceasingly, attacking the church for her purity and her peace, trying to undermine her purity, trying to pull her away from the truth, and trying to disturb her. But you know, what Zechariah pictures here, what he portrays here, is that the church of Christ is not in danger. It's not in danger. They're only in danger if they no longer trust in Christ, if they no longer believe his word. But the church of Christ itself is not in danger. But it's the world that fights against it is in danger. And so you see, in verses 2 through 9, you see the story of the Lord delivering his people among the nations. Why? Because of his promise in Christ. God promises that all the attempts of the enemies that they bring against the church will be there to their ruin. It will be like a boomerang as they try to attack the church. It will boomerang and hit them in in their own foreheads. And you notice here that he brings out three comparisons that illustrate that in verses 2 through 6. Three comparisons to really show that the The church is unassailable. The church is unbeatable. It will never be overthrown. It will never become extinct. Because God is with her. And you see three comparisons here. Verse 2, Jerusalem, because that's his people, that's the church. Verse 3, is called here a cup of drunkenness. 
Okay? It doesn't mean that she herself was drunk, but she's a cup of trembling, a cup of staggering that causes the other nations that try to attack her to stagger, to tremble. All those nations, all those peoples that may try to lay siege on her. What's a siege? It mentions a siege in verse 3. A siege is when you lay, when you lay a siege on the city... The point is that nobody may flee from the city, but nothing may come into the city either. No food, no drink. It's a way of trying to starve the people. To, yeah, to starve the people. And you think about, that's what the world does. What does the world try to do? You know, when the world becomes weary, as a proverb says, Let's go persecute the Christians. That's what the world does. That's not surprising. It Even willing to starve it. Because it wants to banish her from society. It, does, it wants the church to conform to the mold of society. To take on the values of society. And the world seeks to banish the church from society unless unless she forsakes Christ and his word. That's what the world wants, right? God says, no, the world is going to be reeling. The world's going to be staggering. The second one, verse 3. So a cup of trembling. Jerusalem, the church is going to become a cup of trembling to the nations. The second one, verse 3. Jerusalem, where the church is compared to a heavy stone. And here it says, that it will bring injury to anyone who tries to remove that stone or try to carry it away from its rightful place, this stone called the church. Those who want to advance the kingdom of darkness, of sin in the world, what do they see? how do they see the church? The church is a great obstacle. It stands in the way. Let's remove it. Let's remove it. It's a heavy stone. They just can't seem to remove it. Can't seem to get rid of it. Why is that? Because it's built upon the rock. And who's the rock? The foundation stone. The Lord Jesus Christ. Unbeatable. Unassailable. Christ says in Matthew 21, Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. And whoever it falls, and on whomever it falls, it will grind him into powder. Frightening images. But this goes to show also the love of God for his people. Nothing can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. That's the second metaphor, right? One is the, the cup of staggering. The other one is the heavy stone. The third one is a fire pan, a fiery torch. You see that in verse 6. If you look at verse 6, there it talks about the governors of Judah. But again, it's all connected to the church. The church is compared to a fire pan and a fiery torch. And God makes the enemies like what? Wood. A sheaf of corn. You put a match to it, it's combustible. It just burns so easily. It burns so easily. I think of the confession of Julian the apostate. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. He was the nephew of 
Constantine the Great in the fourth century in the early church. And Constantine, of course, he had an edict that said, okay, Christianity is now the, 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 the religion of the empire. And so he encouraged all to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was really spreading. But then his nephew, Julian the Apostate, he was not a Christian. And what did he want to do? He did his best to make alive all the false religions that were dying in the empire. And after all those years of effort, the religious temples were empty. They stayed empty. They remained empty. And it is said that when he was dying from the wounds in the battle, he caught some of that blood that was spurting from his throat and from his wrists. And he threw the blood toward heaven. And he said, You have conquered, O Galilean. Galilean refers to Christ. You have conquered, Galilean. This just bears the truth, right, of what God is saying here. The promise of redemption. (laughs) You see in verses 7 through 9, the the outcome. The outcome of God's actions is salvation. Verse 7, he speaks of a salvation which will be granted to Judah first. Why Judah first? Because it's from Judah that the the great redemption will come, that the king will come, the one that was promised in Genesis 3, who would crush Satan. From Judah, he will come forth as king. And in verse 8, God holds out that promise before his people. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't compromise. Remain true to your confession. There's one coming. There's one coming who will deliver Verse 8, the house of David shall be like God, like the angel Lord before them. In other words, in Christ, the house of David, what that means is that the church will shine ever more brightly. The one coming from there will be like God. Indeed, God himself. God incarnate. God in the flesh. And he will destroy Satan, the one who has the power of death. And he will destroy death. The coming one will once again lead the house, lead the church and protect his people like Yahweh himself, like God himself. Wow. Talking about humanization, talking about a good shot on the arm, an encouragement to continue. You know, the Lord summarizes the story of the gracious defense of his people in verse 9. Verse 9, you could say, just summarizes everything what he said in verses 2 through 9. And what God really shows us in these verses, if we look at from a New Testament perspective, is that wonderful truth of Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And if you read these verses carefully again, it looks very frightening, doesn't it? The sight of soldiers... The sight of the enemy, the sight of horses charging, trying to all go against God's people, that's the sight of the soldiers. But then you have the sight of God. The sight of God frustrating every advance. They cannot go against his plan, not in even one detail. 
and everything that happens is according to his sovereign plan. But you see him frustrating their advance. And that, brothers and sisters, really encourages confidence, doesn't it? To remain true to our confession in Christ. When it, it brings in confidence, it brings encouragement, it brings peace. And this should be for every believer to realize that in the face of all or anything that comes your way, whatever it is, and you know what that is in your life, whatever it is, it may, be, may seem frustrating, it may seem puzzling, but to know those words of God in Romans 8.37, that whatever it is in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's the one who brings us through it. He is with us. If he is for us, who can be against us? That's what the despondent, discouraged people of God had to think through and hear in God's day, in, in, the, in Zechariah's day, the promise of redemption. When is that day? Again, five times we read in Dirt verses 2 through 9. And on that day, on that day. When is that day that the siege of Jerusalem will take place and its deliverance? When was Jerusalem sieged? And when did that deliverance take place? Well, I think there's good reason to understand from the Bible, that refers to the day when Jesus died on the cross. That's when Jerusalem was sieged. And that's the day when deliverance happened. Well, how does that come to be? How do we understand that in that way? If you look at verses 10 through 14, they follow right after verses 2 through 9, and you see the gracious effects of this redemption. What happened on that day? It's very clear when you go to Acts chapter 4, the disciples are given an account of Jesus' crucifixion in Acts chapter 4, 23 through 28. And what do they do today? They quote Psalm 2. And what does Psalm 2 say? It, it speaks of the rage of the nations. Just what we're hearing about in Zechariah chapter 12. The rage of the nations, the kings of the earth, taking their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. They mention in Acts chapter 4, the disciples mention the plotting of Herod, the plotting of Pilate, mentioned along with all the Gentiles and the people of Israel gathering together, laying siege where? In Jerusalem, against the Christ, against the king. They pierced him the promised one, in the battle against Jerusalem. You know what's so amazing here, what's, so, what's, what's such a mystery here is, not only did the nations seize Jerusalem to kill the king, but Jerusalem joined them. The church joined them in their siege against Jerusalem in order to kill the promised king, the one to whom would be defeating Satan. They took the side of the nations against God. They nailed the Son of God to the cross. 
You know, you look at it and you think, oh, it looks like God's own people cut off their own redemption. Jesus prayed, did he not? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. One of his words from the cross, as the blood was flowing from the wounds of his hands and from his feet, the nail prints, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That was a mystery. And yet, in the midst of that battle, you see a joyous mystery here. His death on the cross was God's means of saving, redeeming his people. That is, delivering Jerusalem from her own sin, and that he did through the cross. You know, God poured out his spirit in Jerusalem. Verse 10. He poured out his spirit in Jerusalem, on the house of David. All those references show that's been fulfilled. As he promised in Zechariah 12, verse 10, the spirit of grace and supplication, the very one they murdered, the very one they nailed to the cross by their sins, is the very one who arose again from the dead and who pours out his spirit of grace and supplication so that they can see that it was their sins, it was our sins, that nailed through the cross. And that in itself, the Spirit will enable us to repent and bring us to grief for what we have done. That was the day of Pentecost. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, those who nailed him by their sins, because of their sins, what did they do? <clears throat> they saw. It was the Holy Spirit's work. They saw what they did wrong. They realized their eyes were opened. You know, when we share the gospel with other people, which we should be doing all the time, we should be sharing the gospel with other people, and we share, we share with them what Christ did on the cross, and you say, how come they don't get it? Well, then think about this question. How come you get it? Because it's only by the spirit of grace that was poured out on the church. They see it. And we can pray for others too. The spirit of grace and supplication. You know, on that day, in his message, the Apostle Peter said, let all of his house of Israel know, that's the house of Israel that Zechariah is referring to, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and King. And hearing the message, what happens? Now you begin to see the Holy Spirit is poured upon the church, cuts, their, cuts them to the heart. Men, brothers, what shall we do? There's the supplication. There's the prayer. You see the spirit of grace. They come to see. They come to see their own sinfulness. But also the prayer. The spirit of grace is the gracious working of the Holy Spirit. And what is the gracious working of the Holy Spirit? It is such a grace when he leads us to conviction of our own sin. So easy to see the sin of others. But it's a spirit of grace when he convicts us of our own sin and brings us to repentance. That's one of the joys of redemption. But it's also one of the humbling things of redemption. It's only then 
that we truly gaze upon Christ, the crucified Christ. We look upon him in faith, that is, and we mourn and grieve over our own sin. Look at verse 10. I will pour the spirit of grace and supplication. It's only because of that that we read then, they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. The intensity of that grief of what my sin caused him. That relationship is so intimate. That relationship is so special that God established in the garden. It's like, it's like grieving your only son or your only daughter. That's how intense that grief is. Let's focus on those words for a few moments. Then they will look on me, on whom they pierced. Who's the me? The one who laid the foundations of the earth. The one who put the spirit of breath, the breath into man. Verse 1. The one who was defending Jerusalem. Me. This is Yahweh in the flesh incarnate God coming to redeem in his love and grace his people from their sins because we can do nothing with our sins. The world hates that message because the world thinks we can do something but we can't. We need, only thing we can do is look upon him whom we have pierced. That's the first step. And it's only by the grace of the Spirit These words were first of all fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. The one they pierce is the one they wound, is the one they killed. How do we know that? If you turn to John 19, 36 and 37, here you see a direct fulfillment of these words of Zechariah 12, 10. It says that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. And what scripture was fulfilled? Zechariah 12, verse 10. They shall look on him whom they pierced. And on that day, says Zechariah 12, verse 11, you look at verse 11, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Was there great mourning in Jerusalem? There was. You read in Luke 23, verse 48. It says there that when all the people had gathered to witness this sight, this, uh, what they saw that took place, they beat their breasts. There was great mourning. There must have been saying, we did this. We did this. Even as they see all the accompanying signs, the darkness, the earthquake, the rock splitting. This explains why on the day of Pentecost, How many people were convicted of their sin and turned to Christ for salvation? 3,000. It was a day of great mourning in the land, in the land of Jerusalem. Yes, then they will look on me whom they pierced. They will mourn. Yeah, it's that day. But there's another way that day also applies, and that's to us today. The time between Jesus' first coming and second coming. We live in that day, right, in a, in a fuller sense than even when it first applied to Christ's death. 
but it's a, you could say it flows out of that. Revelation 1, verse 7. There it is again. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now, how do we understand that? I believe that we should understand the light of Daniel 7, where it talks about the Lord Jesus having risen from the dead, having conquered, and he rises with the clouds into heaven. So it pictures his ascension. And of course, later, his return. But it first of all pictures his ascension. And there we read, Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Picture the gospel going to all the tribes of the earth. Right? The Great Commission. And what is, how is it that we see him? How do we see him who was pierced? Well, it's through the word of God. The preaching of the gospel. That's how we see him today. Not in the flesh today, but we see him as he's portrayed to us as crucified through the word of God, through the preaching of the word. Look at Galatians 3 verse 1. Paul talks about how Galatians were foolishly departed from the truth. He says, how is it that you can turn so quickly from the one who was portrayed as crucified before your very eyes? He's talking about through the word. That's the sense here. Every eye shall see him, even they who pierced him. And the beautiful thing is, the Lord Jesus works through the word of God in such a way that he also enables us to mourn for our sins through the preaching of the gospel. That's what it means when the one who was pierced also pierces our hearts. It's really a, a, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. This mourning is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Think of Jesus' words. Blessed are those who mourn. They're blessed. Because you see the work of the Spirit convicting and looking to Christ for forgiveness. It's evidence of the work of God's grace in the soul of a person. It's a mourning grounded on seeing Christ by faith, portrayed before you through the word, through the gospel. We sometimes, you know, become so preoccupied by major sins of the society around us. Look how, look how bad they are. Oh, look at their depravity. Oh, and we compare ourselves to them. And you know what? Sometimes we lose sight of the need to deal with our own, you could say, more refined sins, respectable sins. I think of a book, it's even called, there's a book called Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. It's probably good to pick up sometime. He mentions the respectable sins, those sins that are sort of acceptable among us. They're not so bad. And he mentions a whole bunch of them. He mentions anxiety, frustration, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, anger, envy, jealousy, gossip, sins of the tongue. Those sins nailed Jesus on the cross. Those are sins that we can only see as sins when the Holy Spirit first convicts us of them. And that we turn to Christ on the cross looking and see we need forgiveness for those sins. I don't need to look at how bad other people are. 
I just need to be convicted of my own sin. Matthew Henry says it this way, Christ is our king. Our sins are his death. And for that reason ought to be our grief. Now, we should not wallow in those sins and just say, well, that's just the way I am. That's not the gospel. Rather, we are to believe the gospel through which Christ dealt with both the guilt of sin and his power over us. There's a way out. Even those so-called respectable sins, terrible sins, terrible enough to kill Christ on the cross. But to know that Christ came. He said, you look to me. Look to me in faith. There's forgiveness. He removes the guilt of sin and he removes even this power from our lives. Doesn't mean that the struggle is over. All those struggles remain right against those so-called respectable sins. We have to fight them every day. Nonetheless, he always says, come back to me again and again to overcome. Those sins that want to lay siege on us, like they lay siege on Jerusalem, they want to overcome us, they want to overthrow us, they want to they want us to desert Christ but God says if if I'm with you no one can be against you right we can fight how by looking to him who has pierced for us and overcome this is the grace the spirit of grace and supplication this is the grace Christ offers to all who ask all who pray all who see Lord, help me to know myself. Only when I know myself can I come to know you. When I come to know you, I can know myself. Truly in Christ, the church is the staggering cup to the world then. The heavy stone, the fire pan to sin and Satan that wants to lay siege on her. You know, the remaining verses 12 through 14 show that such repentance is genuine, deep, and life-changing. It involves a whole community of believers. I won't read the whole thing, because it talks about the family of the wives, the family of the wives. But really the whole point is, it involves a whole community of believers. The church. Right? It's the real. The world is not real. It's real. It's real about what, how God sees us, and the change that can come to us. It's the family of the family of. This is true, spirit-led revival. Through repentance and faith, God brings forgiveness and healing to broken families, to the church, and to the land. And all who rage against Christ, and all who do not repent of their sins, will see him whom they have pierced when they return. Every eye, right? Every person will be raised from the grave or however their body was disposed of. They will be resurrected from the dead. And they will see him, the one whom they have pierced. They will, but those who have not believed, those who have not repented, they will mourn. But it will be too late. Too late. I think of the song that we're going to sing. Look at verse 2. It says, Every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty, those who set at naught and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree. Deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. It will be too late. 
too late. And that's why Christ comes to us. He portrays himself through the gospel as the one crucified. Look to me. I have given you my spirit, the spirit of grace and supplication. That's the good news. Beloved, by repenting and believing Christ, there is that joy. There will be joy on that day too, at the final day when Christ returns. There's redemption. Sins forgiven. We're set free. Nothing, nothing, no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? That battle was won at the cross. That's why that first, that on that day refers primarily to the cross. It was won on that day. And the best days are yet to come. The resurrection of the body for the believer. The final putting down of Satan. The coming of the new Jerusalem. Untainted fellowship. Unspoiled fellowship with Christ. With one another as believers. Forever and ever. No more darkness. No more battles. No more sin. A church at rest. A new land. A new creation. This is good news, isn't it? The best days are still coming. The best days. Let's declare it. Let's share it. There is a reason to have hope and for the world to have this hope. Amen.